By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is part two of our discussion on driver improvement. So if you haven't listened to part one, you can go back and check that out now. And if we could ask you a quick favor, if you do listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Adam and I would really appreciate it if you took a minute and left us a review on there. And without further ado, we're going to pick up right where we left off from last week. So we've done how to hit up more or less down <laughs> it doesn't you don't have to hit up but if you're five yeah, down and you move it to one down it's still better off that's easy. a really good point like not everyone has to go to extreme plus territory you just have to if you are very down you got to get less down like that's a good goal to work towards oh can i just say on the topic because this is always brought up everybody says oh well the average on tour hits what was it two degrees down with the driver that's old data though also yeah yeah, it's old data. It's from like 2008. So this was before TrackMan was a, a big thing. Now yeah. every player has it. Every player knows what's more optimal. Every coach understands that launching it higher, spinning it less is better. And so if you looked at the average now, I bet I would, I was going to say I'd put my house on it. Maybe I wouldn't, but I would bet there is going to be two degrees higher. It's going to be at least neutral now. And don't forget, these are averages as well. If you put your head in an oven and your butt in a freezer, you might be okay on average temperature, but it's not going to be optimal. It's not going to be good for you. Well, there was a battle for a while. I remember like Rory got into this huge Twitter battle with Brandel Chambly because there was, you know, as people were moving towards the more positive angle of attack, there were some like old school thinkers were like, oh, but you're not going to hit it. Is that you're going to lose accuracy? You got to hit down on it to maintain your accuracy. And Rory kept like showing, I mean, he's like, I mean, his best 
driver of the ball on the planet and one of the best ever is saying, it's like, well, I'm hitting up on it five now and I'm hitting it straighter than ever. So what are you talking about? So I don't believe in that either because I'm telling everyone that I got a straighter ball flight by hitting up on it more. Not to say that that's going to work for everyone. I just don't think, you know, saying a blanketed statement like hitting down on it will give you more control over your driver. If well, anything, I've tested it myself. Yeah on, yeah. on my own game, I've hit hundreds of balls hitting down on it, hundreds of balls hitting up on it. I'm more accurate hitting up on it and longer hitting up on it. Yeah, it's a tougher matchup because if you are going to hit down on it, then you need more ball speed to counteract that or else you're going to lose distance or distance won't be as important to you because you're not going to, you have some to spare, so to speak. But most golfers don't. So yeah, I think we're both in agreement that if you are someone who figures out that you are hitting down on it with your driver, like three, four, five, six degrees and you didn't know it, this could open up a big potential gains for you in distance and accuracy. Yeah, so it's a myth that hitting down makes you more accurate. Everybody yeah, I, says, I, that, oh, hitting down, you hit more fairways. No, not for everybody. It's, it's individual. Yeah, I don't believe that at all. All right, so uh, do we want to keep moving on? We've got about six hours left here. Well, also on the <laughs> averages, oh, we can make this into eight episodes. <laughs> on the averages of hitting down versus up, yeah, you're going to have some guys like Brooks Koepka hitting down on it five degrees, and then you're going to have guys like McElroy hitting up on it four degrees. You'd have to look more at the better drivers, who are the longest drivers, but also who are the most efficient as well, because the ladies' tour is really good to look at, because the ladies' yeah, tour, they don't have yeah, the same all hitting up speed. on it. Yep. Yeah, most of them, I think the average there was three degrees up, and that was years ago, and that may even, might even be more now. And those, the swing speeds of the lady golfers are more representative of the average male golfer. I think they're closer Absolutely. to about 100 mile an hour, which is where the average male golfer is. So, you know, the slower your swing speed, the more you should veer towards that optimal upward angle of attack. In general, obviously not for everybody, because you don't have the speed to get it out there. If you're swinging 120, 130 like these tall pros, then you can do anything and still pummel it out there 300 yards. But it's, yeah, those averages, I wouldn't pay too close attention to them. All right, so we've talked about a lot so far. We talked about impact, ball position, tee height angle of attack a lot about matchups we got a lot of questions about the curvature of the golf ball and then maybe we can talk a little bit about face control as we always like to do you want to talk about some curvature that's a big one on drives right how much the ball curves yeah so someone asked how much shape is too much i think i mean if you're hitting the fairway every time does it matter at least from a theoretical philosophical standpoint however if you're looking at the reality of it you probably don't want to curve the ball more than 10% of the distance in general. You see it on TV, the guys will hit 300 yards and they'll see 90 feet of curvature. That's the kind of max that you see on tour. I think there are some numbers. I think Ping did a study on it as well. I think it was closer to maybe 5% of curvature for top players. But, you know, if you're starting it on the edge of a fairway and it's drawing back to the middle... So kind of 20 yards or so. I wouldn't even bat an eye at that. It's really not a big issue. Whereas if you're having to start it out of bounds in order to keep it on the fairway. Again, if you can repeat it every time, go ahead. But generally, I don't see too many good drivers of the ball doing that. And there are probably reasons for that. Yeah, I think with modern drive, I mean, they always say it's like the ball does not want to curve as much as it used to compared to like, you know, the old Bolada and Wound Balls. Yeah, it still curves. But yeah, I think... 
They, it's. Uh, I mean, I <laughs> I can curve it quite a bit. Yeah, I, yeah I, tell that to a slicer, like right? Bubble. The ball doesn't curve enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I always say. Like, I, I see plenty of golf balls still curving on the course, but. Yeah, I think what you said is a good rule of thumb. I mean, I don't think there's a right answer for every player, but you know, you know, we talk a lot about extremes and being functional on this show. You know, if you're having to start the ball 40, 50, 60 yards left of the center of the fairway or, or wherever your target is, sometimes it's not the center of the fairway or it shouldn't be. Go to our episode with Scott Fawcett to talk about tee shot strategy. Yeah, then I think you're veering into that might be too extreme because what if there are trees there? Like there's just certain golf courses that won't accommodate that flight or even you're playing in windy conditions and that's just going to get out of control. So I think some curve is fine. I've moved to curving it less. You know, I've had more success with my drives where I, I'm almost playing a straightish. If anything, I'm playing like a straight, almost straight push now with my drives where I'm just, you know, I pick my target. Sometimes I close the face a little too much in impact. Sometimes I open it a little bit too much in impact. So I aspire to miss equally on both sides. And I think a lot of great drivers of the golf ball do that. But I don't think there's a right answer for everyone. But avoiding extremes would be a good place to start. Like, you know, playing with a banana slice or a crazy hook is going to be a lot harder to take advantage of your drives. And also it's it's a bit of a distance zapper. Like Ping did that study where they showed... You know, like what's the what's the longest ball flight, a draw or a fade? And it's actually the straightest ball flight goes longer. I mean, I know there's reasons for matchups why a player who hits a fade often has matchups in their impact tendencies that lead to less distance than maybe someone who draws the ball. But, you know, the straighter ball flight, all things being equal, will go farther. So there's a distance elements there as well. You can draw it too much. Obviously, you're losing distance because the ball's curving in the air. Yeah. Also, if you know, you're know a big fader of the ball, especially you're changing spin rates, usually and smash factors by cutting across it. Because in order to shape the ball, you're effectively cutting across it to some extent. And that is going to reduce the energy transference into the ball. However, alternate view to that, or I don't know how to phrase it, but it's actually very little differences between some of your worst and bad shots. And this is a point I say over and over in many different ways, and no one ever likes me saying it because it's true, <laughs> probably. But the difference between one that carves out of bounds to the right and one that gets pummeled straight down the fairway is much less than you think it is. So if I were to say to you, John, if you imagine a robot hitting 250 yards, right, and it's hitting every single one down the fairway, and then you change that face, you open that face by one degree, how far offline do you think the ball would go? I think you've asked me this before. Is it 20 or 30 yards? I forget. It's less than that. It's about Eight. 13 yards. <laughs> 13, okay. 13 at 250. But still, that means if you're missing a fairway, you're probably one and a half degrees offline, 1.5 degrees offline with the face, or you've presented the face to path 1.5 degrees different. If you hit it out of bounds, that might've just been two degrees more open than usual. Visually, it's very difficult to see two degrees open or closed. And so we have to be realistic with these things. This is why, you know, the strategy stuff is so important as well. There's such small differences uh, that we can't effectively control. If we're being honest, we cannot control every single shot to within one and a half degree window to hit the fairway. 
every time. It's just impossible to. So we have to accept that there's going to be some variance either side. It's going to be pretty significant. What did Scott say? Like 60 yard wide for, yeah, for tour professionals? You, yeah, usually most professionals, if you put them on a launch monitor or even you know, pretty good amateurs to scratch level players, it's going to be like that 55 yard to 70 yard window from left to right, which is really like I always I love talking about face controls because like that's primarily what it is like no one has complete control over where that club face is pointing at impact you know with pros we know that strike and gear effect isn't as big of an issue because they're striking it very well on the face but you know i was looking at dustin johnson's stats the other day for something i was going to put in my book i'll just share it here you know justin johnson hits a fade exclusively off the tee Everyone's like, oh, you know, he eliminates the left side of the golf course because the ball's curving left to right. So he knows that he's going to miss it on the right side. It's just not true. If you go on the PGA Tour website and you look at where he misses in terms of distributions when he misses fairways, it's almost identical on both sides. When he was number one in strokes gained off the tee in 2016 and 2017, he was missing it, I think, 15% in the left and right equally when he missed the fairway. It wasn't that much difference. And that, to me, is primarily a face control issues because, like you said, on some drives, yes, his swing path is going to be very consistent where it's probably out to in a few degrees, but he might present that face two degrees closed sometimes or two degrees open, and then that's a left rough and right rough right there. So that's why, like, I put a poll on Twitter the other day. Maybe I probably didn't word it properly. I was like, would you rather miss on one side or both sides? And everyone said one side, and I'm like, I don't think so. I think I'd rather miss on both sides equally because if I was only missing on one side, then I think I'm not aiming properly or I've got something wrong with my face presentation. And there's different dangers on different holes as well. You know, yeah. you've got water down the left on some, you've got out of bounds down the right on others. So you want to have a more 50-50 miss generally. That's a more that shows that the player's got a good strategy. So shaping the shot any way, any direction doesn't eliminate one side of the golf course. You could potentially say, oh, oh well, if I shape it one way, I never miss it right. Like, say I draw the ball, I never miss it right of that start line. So it's always curving left to some degree. But you're still going to have some pushes that don't draw enough and some hooks that draw too much. And the reverse for slices as well. You can go back to our... We talked about this on our fades and draw episode where... Yeah, it doesn't matter what shot shape you play. I play a draw all the time. I miss some of my targets to the right, some to the left because I'm either, you know too close, too open, or maybe overcooked it in terms of the curvature of the ball. And I think you and me don't love people shaping it in both directions for a number of reasons, but it's particularly with the driver, like I'm not a fan of working the ball where it's like, you're trying to like, Oh, this is a dog leg left. I'm going to try and, you know, work it right to left and vice versa. Like, I don't like that. I've heard. And I think a lot of PJ tour players are stopping like Jordan Spieth, came to mind recently he was like i was just trying to work the ball too much for a long time on my driver and kind of got i lost the basics and the best drivers of the ball right now are like you know they're pretty simple you know brooks kepka dustin johnson step up hit that fade every time great some miss left some miss right it's going to be pretty close to the center of their target line yeah I would say the main thing with driver is you've got to be very attuned to the subtle changes 
with face direction because as we mentioned it is really subtle the difference between a bounds one and one that's down the fairway could be as little as two degrees usually i would say in, in most cases it's going to be a small small change in probably how you're holding the club that's certainly what i feel in my own game so when i'm tweaking direction i'm monitoring the patterns i'm saying oh they're starting to go a little bit more left and so i will do a very very small very subtle change to my grip and the way that I achieve it is this, very simple process. I just open the face a little bit more to dress, barely perceptible, open the face a little bit more to dress and then I grip it. It's all I change <laughs> if I want to change my left pattern. And if it's going too far right then, I just square it back up again. It's so simple. I'm not making any huge changes with my swing with the driver. I'm not even feeling anything dramatic with the driver to change that direction. It's a very small calibration process. And that's super important for, you know, we had the Chasing Scratch guys on. I don't know when this episode is going to air because we're recording so many episodes right now and we're kind of queuing it up for the year. So I'm not sure if the Chasing Scratch episode is out yet when this one airs. But remember Mike, who... I think it was a five handicap. He tracks his stats with strokes gain, which is a great idea for everyone. And he found that for him, you know, his driver was, he was hitting it like an 11 handicap and his strength was the short game. So we were kind of diagnosing what was going on with the driver. And essentially what we were trying to do is removing, we're like doing like medical triage or diagnosing the issue is like, we're trying to remove the variables and settle on the core issue. So Mike talked about he was striking it on the center of the face. The ball wasn't curving too much, but he was just missing a lot of shots to the right. So because we had removed all those variables, we knew that Mike primarily had a face control issue because where the face is pointing at impact, especially with a lower lofted club, primarily determines the start line of the golf ball. So if Mike is hitting balls straight to the right, he's got a face control issue. So... You know, whether it's the curvature of the ball, where it's where how much it's curving or where it's starting, you have to work backward as best as you can. Because, you know, in terms of like eliminating those oops shots, those out of bounds ones, I think that for most players, or at least for me, I'll talk anecdotally, that was getting more control over where that club face was pointing at impact was it too far right or too far left and then narrowing that down a bit and that takes some work you know we mentioned plenty of practice methods on, on various episodes but just being able to be like that's my main problem i can focus on that now i think that gives you a much better chance of improving it yeah i would say learning how to feel those subtle differences it's going to be important in terms of how do you develop this stuff if we know that one degree of face change is going to be that significant to our result how do we learn to feel that and this is where i got two little tricks for this obviously there's the practice stuff which is differential practice trying to intentionally maybe do the drill that i just said open the face a tiny bit grip it hit a few shots see how it reacts open the face a little bit more grip it see how the face reacts uh, see how the result reacts and reverse it so you're building a kind of feel here the more you change it on a very subtle level you're learning to feel those changes. You're learning how that feels in your hands. You're learning how the club feels as you're swinging it. So you can sense those changes in things like practice swings. You know, I can make a practice swing and go, oh God, that would have gone left. <laughs> you know, I can feel that one degree change and then I can make a, I can implement something before I make my real swing. 
But the other thing that I, I hardly ever mention this, but I actually have grips with spines in the back of them. And I've, I just find that when I've got that spine in the back, my hands are much more attuned to any face or grip changes that I make. Does that make sense? You know what I mean with the spine in the back? No, of the I, I was just about to say, I have no idea what you're talking about. What's a spine? <laughs> it's like if you shove a little coat hanger down the back of the grip. Oh, okay. So, so it's like protruding a little, a little tiny bit? tiny ridge. Yeah, okay. it protrudes okay. a tiny bit. So, you know, if you had a perfectly round grip, yes. then any changes, you're not going to feel it in your hands. But when you've got a spine there, you can feel that spine is in different locations. So if it's too far, fingers. yeah. So if it's like moving a little bit further right, the club face is open. If it's left, it's closed. Is that the feel you're looking for? Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I can just feel that spine changing in the fingers. And so I know how that correlates to the direction. And so then I can use that feeling to kind of change the direction if I need to. If I'm missing it left one day, I know how I should feel that spine in my fingers. The spine should feel more in the base of my fingers. Whereas if I'm missing it right, it'll feel more in the middle part of my fingers. So it just helps me with that small calibration of the grip. I'm not going to say it's going to light your world up. I probably just... You know, how many listeners have we got on here? We're going to, probably going to bump up the sales of grips now. We'll have to buy some stock before we put this out. <laughs> that class is insider trading. But yeah, it's just something that I personally believe in and I encourage my players to do. Yeah, for face control, I think it's one of our most important episodes. So you can go back to it earlier in the library, but establishing those reference points and just knowing that you know, even sometimes I'll do, I like punch swings with irons for face control a lot. Sometimes I'll even do that with my driver. Like I mentioned, now it'll be episode one of this discussion. I do have a driver shot that I bring out sometimes where I put the ball in the middle of my stance and I'm hitting this smothered hook. Now, sometimes on that type of shot, my face presentation gets even more important because you know, sometimes I'm too open or too closed and then I got a problem. So I will work on that shot sometimes. And that one kind of helps me with face control a lot. I think punch shots in general help with face control a lot, whether or not you play them on the course or not. They're great practice tools. But yeah, just doing that simple drill of, you know, try to start some balls to the right, down the center, down the left, going back and forth, establishing those reference points. For me, I've probably mentioned this in a few episodes now. My face control focus comes from what's going on in the rotation of my trail, you know, forearm hand area. That's just something I think about sometimes during my swing or when I'm practicing or on the course. Like that's my cue to maybe get the face more open or closed when I need to if I'm noticing that pattern. Yeah. I just find for myself when I change face through a swing thought. I can easily overdo it. Yep. And yeah, so I, I can certainly change it through, you know, supination, feeling like more forearm rotation at the bottom or something like that. But yeah, I find it harder to control with that. Plus, it occupies my conscious brain and my conscious mind. So I'm then thinking of something in the swing, or I use up a slot basically of thought things that I could think about whereas when I do the grip thing that's more of a pre-shot thing for me so I can do that and then I can be blank mentally through the shot or it gives me a free slot to think of something through the shot which might be face strike and I think you everyone finds these little feels for themselves when they experiment more during practice and now that we're hopefully teaching you what variable does what 
you know, if you're missing the ball way to the right or way to the left, that's a face control issue most of the time. Then you could focus on that during your practice sessions and mess around a bit and see what happens. You might find something, you know, you might have a cue mentally or physically. It could be as little as flashing the face open, which I do sometimes as well. That's what practice is for, is figuring those things out. So we talked about curvature and we veered into face control a bit. I know we've got a ton of questions to get to. Um, Was there anything more you wanted to talk about on those topics? Yeah, just how really simple. If you're looking at what I do in my own game, and I'm a a good driver of the ball, it's very simple. The entire practice, the entire process on the course is really simple. I'm only really concerned with two things. Where did I strike it on the face? What are the face direction patterns? You know, if my strike is fine on the day, I don't even have to think about that. I'm just calibrating that feel in my hands, you know, where the grip feels to change the direction. If I've got both issues, if it's a hook and I'm hitting out the toe and face is closed, then I'm consciously thinking about face strike is the first thing. I'm trying to make it less toey. Usually that will solve the hook. And then once I've got that in place, if the ball's still hooking, then I'm going to calibrate that feel of the grip. It's literally just how does it feel in my hands? Just subtly calibrating it, more open, more closed. How does it feel on the face? And I'm subtly calibrating that more heel and toe. You know, you might have to look at the higher and lower element of strike as well. You're catching it too high or low on the face. That tends not to be an issue for me. For most people, it tends to remain very consistent as well. So it's not something they'd have to worry about on the course. So I think for most people, the process is going to be very similar. You're going to need something to tweak the face and something to need to tweak the strike location. Yeah, I think, you know, maybe wrapping up like the diagnostic part of it is why your golf ball is doing what it does. I'm always starting with the face too, watching the ball. Like, did I feel like I struck it on the heel being to identify that? And then, you you start with the strike first. Yeah, strike first. And then if I knew I struck it on the heel and I saw a left to right ball flight, then I know that I healed it. That's why it went left to right. But let's say I struck it well. And then, you know, for me, I'm seeing that hook. That is a swing path issue. I need to neutralize that swing path. And then I also look, did it start too far right or too far left? That is a face path, a face presentation issue. So Are you yeah. changing path on the course though? Are you changing path on the course? Sometimes I do need to. If I you know, if I'm going to suffer with a pattern sometimes, it's sometimes it's I'm overhooking the ball because yeah, as I've said a million times, I can get extreme in my path. So there are times where it's not often, but I will need to maybe rehearse that slice swing to change the path most days it's what you said is a combination of how am i striking it on the face and how am i presenting the club face open or closed i'm paying attention to these two those are the two variables that i think i'm focused most because as i become a better driver of the ball the variables have narrowed that could go wrong whereas if you talk to me 10 years ago (laughs) i mean striking it all over the place like starting it very far right very far left hooking it one way slicing it i mean it was just it was everything so as i've gotten better i feel like as my skills have increased i've now narrowed the potential amount of problems that have occurred so it's less to fix on the course so yeah it's primarily a strike and face presentation thing and then sometimes maybe i got to worry about my swing path more 
I'd say the problems are the same for golfers, just to a different magnitude. They're just more extreme. Right? Yeah, you're dealing yeah. with more it's a face extreme, strike yeah. or face direction, or occasionally you might want to look at path. Yeah, but I probably wouldn't recommend that on course unless you're well versed in changing your path as you are. But yeah, I'm very similar for the most part. You know, say I toe hook it. I'm not going to change face first. It's this very specific order. It's going to be right. Change the strike first. If I toe hook it, then if it's still hooking it, it's right. Now let's change the face. And if it's still hooking or it's a mixture of blocks and hooks, then I might do something to change the path. I rarely get there, but that might be a final stage that I get to on the course. One final point I'll make, and this goes to my harping on the T height and ball position thing, is that I think when you are struggling on the course, one of the temptations is to start changing everything. So in the past, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to change my ball position. I'm going to change my tee height. And then based on each shot, I would just be like, oh, that was too high. That was too low. Now that I'm more confident that I have the optimal setup, I am not messing with it because I don't want to introduce more variables on the golf course. I want to do one of my episode ideas that we'll do another time is removing variables. I'm about removing variables in golf now. I want to make things more simple. So... Not every day I'm driving it well, but I'm also resisting that temptation to change my ball position and tee height because I don't want to change that variable. I'm very comfortable that those are optimal for me. I've done the work off the course to get those mostly quote unquote right or optimal, whatever you want to call it. So I'm not going to start messing with those. Like I just don't want to, because as we discussed in the prior episode, your ball position and tee height can change a lot of things with your strike angle of attack and club path. So you're just opening a whole other can of worms. So that's one other point I'd try and make is that when you find your optimal setup, resist the temptation to keep changing it. You want to exert control over these variables because it is the one shot on the golf course, like I said before, that you have complete control over the setup. It's not a side hill lie. It's not in the rough. It's the same thing every time, or you can make it the same thing every time. So consistency is very important there. So yeah, I would, that's like my one caveat for like when I'm trying to make some on-course adjustments if necessary is that I don't want to open up more cans of worms <laughs> is, is what I'm trying yeah, to I'd say. Yeah, I'd go with that. I'd go with that. I wouldn't be changing ball position and tee height on the course. That'd be something you do on the range when you're seeking a more optimal solution. But on the course, yeah, it's more face direction and face strike. Yep. We got a ton of questions on Twitter. We're not going to be able to get to all of them. Do you want to start tackling some more of those? I've got one here. How much do modern drivers help? Someone said. <laughs> they got a new stealth driver. Everybody's going nuts. What, yeah. What's the deal with that? Is it a carbon face? Or it's something? carbon face. The thing about the driver is like the limit's been set, the COR limit. It's been set for over a long time now, I think 20 years. And the manufacturers can play some games to get around it, but the amount of games they can play are are starting to disappear. So, you know, you could definitely go back to our episode with Woody Lashen, but as much as I've learned about drivers at this point is that it's not necessarily, they're maxed out on home run swings, meaning like if you strike it on the center of the face perfectly and hit the sweet spot, There's no driver that can make that better now. But what they can do is on the off-center strikes, you know, they have more what's called spin consistency across the face, and that's a mixture of MOI and some other things. So, like, 
and this is really appropriate for recreational players because you know as we know we're not all striking it on the center of the face all the time is that they can make those miss hits less costly and less offline than they used to be so i think my opinion on the modern driver is that yes it can deliver more distance and accuracy to players because they're figuring out ways to create more stability on off-center strikes on that ball they're preserving ball speed your spin right your spin rate might not change as much they're fighting against gear effect more so yes they still are not optimal but you know they're not as penalizing as let's say a driver 20 years ago you start striking it all over the toe it's a different story that's my take on modern like driver design i got three drivers at the moment i got one from 12 years ago callaway razor x I've got one, a tailor-made now that I got last year that I've just put, I've taken out of the bag because I didn't like it. <laughs> I've got this two-inch longer driver that I haven't even touched yet. But I've actually, I'm, I'm playing with my old driver. I'm playing with my 12-year-old driver. Why? Because as you said, the speed off the face is already maxed out. It was maxed out years and years ago, 12 years ago at least. They can't make it faster off the face. So I'm getting the same ball speed with my old driver as I am with my brand new one. Um, I already, through technique, I figured out how to launch it higher and lower the spin rate. So my best shots with my 12-year-old driver are the same distance as my best shots with my brand new driver. The difference is with the new driver, the spin rate is more stable. So if I catch it a little bit low on the face, I still get a sub 2000 spin rate, which still gets out there. With my old driver, if I catch it a little bit on the low part of the face, the spin creeps up 500 RPMs and it kills my distance. But I hit it more accurately. I've just tested it. I've hit hundreds of balls and the spread with the new driver is much bigger. Whether it was just a poor fit for me, whether the moment of inertia of the club is different, worse, I don't know. I mean, it was it's designed as a lower spinning club, so maybe gear effect is increased on that club. I don't know the reason. All I know is that I don't hit it as accurate as my old driver, so I've gone with that. So everybody, I'm using a 12-year-old driver. <laughs> and that's okay. I mean, there's some tour players who, you know, there's these stories where they, they get the new driver that they're OEM, who they get paid a lot of money by, and they're like, I ain't playing this thing. I think the tailor-made rocket ball the rocket whatever that one was it's like 10 years ago at this point when that thing first came out apparently the staff the tour staff was like i am not playing this thing and apparently they had to do some wild things in the tour van to make it work for people that they would never do for a normal golfer because it just wasn't a good match for them so yeah i think you know you and i are you know, I believe in club fitting. That's why we have Woody on here. You know, I'd, I'd love to get you in a session with Woody Adam and see what he can find for your swing. But yeah, there's, you know, I think with modern drivers, it's less about making your crap shots less crap, if that makes sense, versus like they can't make your home run swings any better because those are already maxed out. So that's my thought on drivers. And if you have a six-year-old driver, maybe the newer technology can help you with those off-center strikes more, that's what I would be more focused on. I mean, the other end of the bell curve there, I'm already swinging in an optimal way in terms of angle attack and launch and all that stuff. You're maxed out on yeah. most everything else as well. 
Yeah, but you could get the average golfer with say 3000 RPMs of spin and really low launch. And if you give them one of the modern heads and a lower spinning head, for example, that might have the center of gravity really, really low in the head. And so that would then launch higher with lower spin. So you might see significant distance increases for that type of player. So I don't want to say that modern clubs are not great for everybody there's probably a greater selection now and so again it's like matchups right you've you got to get the right club head to fit what you need and so there are more options these days i would say and more adjustable options as well like my 10 12 year old driver doesn't have much versatility to it whereas now you can just yank the wrench in it and you can change the loft you can change the lie you can change the weights around you can slide the weights around on the club so there's so much adjustability built into these new ones that it's it's good that was another question we got you know should you be playing around with adjustable drivers i would say for most of you listening to this no you should not i don't think you should be taking the wrench and playing with the loft moving the center of gravity around they have the fade and the draw settings my best piece of advice is to <laughs> sound like a broken record have someone who knows what they're doing set it for you and then resist the temptation to change it when i get my driver set when woody works with me we get it dialed in i do not touch the thing so adjustable drivers are great for club fitters because it gives them more options but for the recreational golfer it could be a horrible can of worms if you're showing up to the course be like, oh, I'm going to go eight degrees today because I was hitting it a little bit, you know, too high. And then it just messes with so many things like spin rates, launch angle, and you're just kind of changing lanes in a traffic jam, so to speak. I always refer to that opening scene of Office Space where he keeps changing lanes and getting nowhere. So my answer to that question is that if you do not know what you're doing, resist the temptation to turn that wrench. So that's my answer to that question. I speak to some people who know what they're doing. I mean, there's some pretty intelligent golfers out oh, there. Oh, yeah, there are. I'd Absolutely. Say at the very least, if you're going to adjust it, take a little photo of your existing setup so that well, you, you have go to straight have a, back to it. Whenever you're making it, like, I don't make many equipment changes unless I see a tangible gain. And we're always looking at the launch monitor numbers. So, you know, I have access to all this great equipment, luckily, through my some of the connections I've made hopefully that's not bragging. It's just how I made my way through the golf industry at this point, but I'm still playing the same irons I had from six, seven years ago. We tried new ones. We couldn't get better. So we didn't get new irons. I'm still playing the same exact wedges. I just changed the grooves every year. My putter is the same as it's been for five years. So I'm not someone who likes to make changes for the sake of making changes. I want to see a tangible result. So yeah, if you don't have, if you're just throwing caution to the wind and playing with the driver, I just don't know what most people stand to gain from that. That's just my thoughts on that. And also the, the advice I've gotten from professional fitters. Especially if it's just random. I mean, how, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, there are probably a lot of people out there who are just selecting random things on their driver and hoping that they find something that works and that's not the right way of doing it. But yeah. if you launch it relatively high and your spin rate is just too high, I'm happy to suggest that people, oh, just try a lower loft on there and that will... You know, you've got the high launch already, so you can you can deal with a degree lower launch, and it, it might reduce the spin rate enough that you pick up some serious yardage from it. But if you're playing with lie angles and things like that, or the weight positions, I've never actually tested it. I should do that. I should hit a few shots and test moving the weights around. It makes I mean, a if difference. You're robotic. 
it makes it a does. difference yeah I, i've yeah. played around with them and i recommend not playing around with them because it does shift the center of gravity around horizontally so you know again there better be a good reason why you have it on the fade setting or the draw well, setting yeah i know what would happen if i tested it the first couple would come out as predicted if i put it on the draw setting it would come out as predicted and then you'd shift and then i'd unconsciously figure yep. out how to make it go straight again exactly. i mean i did that before when i was getting my driver fit the guy who fit me he said you're not going to be able to draw this one he set it up so it was ultimate fade and yeah the first two i whacked way to the right but within five shots i was hooking it again. <laughs> i was hitting a, well a, you know a 10 yard draw with it and he's like how are you drawing that i'm just like it's, it, my brain likes to see that and so therefore it will seek it out and i know how to change the variables so that's one of the problems when fitting tall players is you can only give them the club for a couple of shots before they figure out how to make it work again and that might start to affect the rest of your bag so you can imagine it when i had this driver that's set up to slice off to the right and I figure out how to get it draw again, what happens to the rest of my set? They're all now hooking because I'm starting to build things into my swing that make that driver go left. That's, so you've got to be very careful That's why with I'm things. trying to remove variables, not add them. Well, you know, I actually use the opposite of that theory. I set that driver up. Occasionally, I'll set it up into the hook setting. And I'm like, why would you do that? I'm setting up the hook when I'm already suffering with a hook. Well, that's because when I'm practicing with that, when I'm doing block practice, my brain figures out, how do I make this club? Oh, yeah, that, that would fall under your, your differential practice, right? It falls under a constraint, we call yep. it. It's an equipment <laughs> constraint that forces you to figure out a solution. And the solution yep. that I figure for that is a more right bias pattern. So then when I go back to my old driver, that is unconsciously built into my swing then. So I actually use those those things in reverse. Similarly with irons, I tend to miss everything to the left if I'm going to miss anything. So I've actually got an iron that is set that is too upright. It makes me hit it left. And if I spend 10 minutes practicing with that, I figure out how to open the face more. When I go back to my old irons, my pattern is more neutral. Maybe we could do a whole topic on that one day. What you're saying doesn't necessarily, you know, we, we always get caught up with words in golf. Like when I say remove variables, I mean in like the stuff you're bringing to the course every day. Like I don't want someone showing up to the course with the draw setting one day, the 10 degrees loft and eight degrees loft. That's too many variables. You're talking about making practice more challenging for yourself that i absolutely am on board with we're going to take a quick break there and we will be right back what's up sweet spot listeners i am super excited to introduce a new brand we're working with gooder sunglasses i pretty much do not go outside without sunglasses on and i definitely wear them all the time on the golf course so it's a really important product for me Gooder makes $25 active sunglasses that are lightweight, comfortable, and do not move while you swing. When I first got them, I was shocked at the quality. There's no way you would know they were $25 if someone just put them in your hands. Their golf sunglasses have HD contrast, so you'll see clearly when you're on the golf course, and you don't have to worry about losing them because they don't have a hefty price tag. You may have seen Sergio Garcia wearing them recently playing on the PGA Tour. They have a wide variety of designs and colors that should suit just about any style you're looking for, whether it's for golf or elsewhere in your life. All Gooder sunglasses are 100% UV protective and have polarized lenses. You'll also get a one-year warranty and a 30-day window to return them for free if you don't like them. 
If you want to try out a pair or two, we've arranged an exclusive discount for Sweet Spot listeners. Go to gooder, G-O-O-D-R.com forward slash Sweet Spot and use promo code Sweet Spot at checkout and you will receive 15% off your entire order. That's www.goodr.com forward slash Sweet Spot. And make sure to use promo code SweetSpot at checkout for your 15% discount. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash SweetSpot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G Shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. Yeah, or training in a way that challenges your patterns and encourages you to find solutions. Yeah, that's different different to what you're talking about. For sure. All right, here's another great question. And I really wanted to address this at the beginning of the episode or episode one at this point. How much driver improvement do you need compared to other parts of your game? Putting, iron play, wedges, etc. That's always the million-dollar question is how much time am I devoting to each part of the game during practice. I mean, in terms of like a global perspective on driving the golf ball and always, I love when people go back to our episode on Mark with Mark Brody, which is one of our most listened to episodes at this point, you know, his research indicates that, you know, approach play was the biggest separating factor in scoring 
from golfers at all level. And then, you know, tee shots, you know, particularly your driver play, is number two. So being a good driver of the ball is very important. So, but at the same time, I don't want people spending inordinate amounts of time on parts of the game where they're already proficient at. So I guess my answer, Adam, you can have your answer to this as well, which might be different, is that I would rely more on, you know, using strokes gained. You can measure your own statistics at this point and figure out. You could benchmark your driver at this point and see what your handicap level is, you know, whether it's, you know, Arcos, ShotScope, Golf Metrics, Decade, all the apps out there. You could track your shots and it can tell you like, hey, you're a five handicap, but you're hitting the ball. You're driving it like a scratch golfer. So you're outperforming. So that player, it's like, all right, I would not tell you to spend 30, 40, 50% of your practice time hitting drivers because you're already pretty damn good. I'd maintain it is what I tell that player versus someone like Mike from Chasing Scratch. If he's an 11 handicap with his driver and his current handicap is five, well, I'd say, well, then you've got to invest more time here until you see better results. Like, that's how I view it is like, I think the driver is arguably the most important club and singular club in the bag for scoring. Maybe you can argue that putter could be more important for certain players, but it's very important. So I would probably devote, I don't know, 20% of my practice time to hitting driver, something like that, 10, 20. I don't think it's the right answer for everyone. It's nuanced. I mean, there's return on time invested as well. Yeah. And certainly what I recommend when people are entering a tournament, like if you had a, a tournament tomorrow, where is your time best spent? Probably looking at short game stuff. Yeah. Because if you spend an hour on short game and you build feel and you improve your speed control by like three foot or something, then that is going to have a big effect on your score. And that can be done in an hour. You know, an hour of practicing putting can really improve your speed control dramatically. It won't stay with you forever. Similar for chipping as well. Just, you know, doing a few shots so you understand how is the green bouncing, how is the green rolling, how is it spinning. Those type of things are going to really have a good return on time invested. Whereas that same hour spent driving, you're probably not going to figure out how to never hit a ball out of bounds with driving in an hour. So, but then you look at long term, and long term, it might be a, a different story. You know, there's only so much, there's only so good that you can get your short game. I suppose you could argue the same with driver in a way, but you know, when... The ceiling is much higher with driver, I believe. The amount the, of the, shots you can save, yeah, yes. is going to be higher with driver and irons, yeah. So obviously you, you look at the stats and you say, well, yeah, it makes sense spend more of your time on approach play a lot of time on drivers and then pre-tournament bump it up for for short game stuff but then even that depends on what's the reason right if someone is they're driving it poor and they're hitting everything right off the toe of the club well you can fix that in five minutes and you can make someone you could probably significantly improve someone's driving in five minutes or if they're slicing everything off to the right probably not a good idea to go and practice your putting let's get that slice in shape and that might be just changing the club face by a couple of degrees maybe a small grip change so it really is nuanced it depends on what the issue is 
and what your other parts of the game are what's the return on time invested and i suppose if you can't do this stuff yourself you'd have to get some kind of coach to look at certain things and i mean most of it is common sense really our intuitive sense for these things is usually close to the mark i wouldn't say all the time though yeah, I would just say with one thing in terms of the driver overall is that you have two things affecting your ceiling, which is your overall dispersion. Are you losing a lot of strokes from being in recovery situations or penalty areas or out of bounds? And then there's the distance part of it. So the reason I say for most players in terms of scoring potential, your ceiling with the driver is usually much higher than the putter is because... You know, if you do like work on the distance part of it and you go from someone who's driving at 230 to someone who's driving at 270, 280, which is possible through some of the things we've discussed on this episode with angle of attack, just from setup changes, in addition to working on swing speed, which we've discussed in other episodes with like Mike Carroll and our, our increasing driver distance episode. But that 40, 50, 60 yards is worth a significant amount of strokes. So yeah, I think that for a lot of players, doing the smart work with the driver can... I guess my main point is is that I've played with a lot of great golfers at this point. All of them have been good off the tee with their driver. I've never been around a golfer who I would consider you know, a, a very high-level player who avoided their driver and didn't embrace it. So for the player that's really struggling with it, and just like, which was me for a long time, and trying to hit other clubs off the tee to avoid it, that was not the answer in terms of my scoring potential. My scoring potential increased dramatically when I started tackling it head on. So yeah, if it's a big problem for you, do not avoid it. If you're already pretty proficient with it, then yeah, there might be some other parts of the game where you have a higher return on time invested. Let's get to some other questions. Do you have another question queued up or do you want me to find one here? Yeah, there's uh, how do you bring down spin rate? That's always in, in my forums that I run. That's always such a common thing. I get that at least once a day. I'm spinning yep. too high. I'm spinning too high. Right? How do you bring it down? Someone also said I'm playing into the wind and losing distance. So this yeah, is an interesting one. one. I'm, I'm going to run some numbers on this. But say you had a low launching ball with a high spin versus a high launching ball with a low spin into the wind the high launch low spin will go farther it does depend on the severity of the wind and the severity of the launch and spin but generally a high launching shot with low spin is going to cut through the wind much more and so i i don't really change my shot type my trajectory when i'm playing into the wind i still launch it quite high i just make sure that, that i'm getting that low spin to to go through the wind i remember tiger i can't remember he got made fun of this of he got made fun of for saying this it was one of the british opens and he said he couldn't control his spin rate or something and that was the reason why he played bad and it's true man if you're playing into the wind and you just hit it you're hitting too high a spin rate it's really tough oh it's so how impossible. do we reduce it what have you got, John? How do you reduce a spin rate? I'll just make a quick point on the wind because I play in the wind all the time is that spin is your enemy in the wind on any shot. You know, the more spin you introduce to the golf ball in the wind, especially if the wind's into you, not a good thing. So yeah, when people try and hit lower with their driver intentionally, like what used to happens, like usually their spin rate jumps on them because they'll probably tee it lower and strike it lower on the face so you hit that low spinner and it just balloons on you versus you know I, i've seen the the difference in going to the higher launching low 
when I smoke a drive that's a high knuckleball into the wind, it still goes pretty far. I mean, it's not going to go as far, obviously, as it would with no wind, but it doesn't suffer as much. So I, I would definitely say you want to do anything you can to avoid adding spin to the golf ball in the wind. Uh, in terms of lowering the spin, I mean... For me, it's a lot of it's avoiding the lower half of the club face. <laughs> That's a big one. We talked about impact earlier. If you can access that center to upper half, that will reduce spin quite a bit. We're getting back to our impact importance. Yeah, there's some driver elements in there in terms of the settings and the the center of gravity of your driver and getting the right fit. You know, most modern drivers are going to reduce spin now, but that doesn't work for everyone. So, yeah, if someone was spinning it too much, I would look at strike location first. That would be my first order of action. Yeah, that's the first thing I look at as well. Make sure it's slightly high in the face, slightly towards the toe if you want to reduce spin. That's a good one. If you're low in heel, that would you're not going to be a low spin player from there generally. You could also just change the ball, you know, go into a Pro V1, which is lower spinning than the Pro VX. They changed that one year, didn't they? It used to be the yeah. was the lower spinning ball. Why did they flip it? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, we're going to have maybe this episode, I don't know when the episode will air again, but we're going to have the ping guys come in and give us a lot of golf ball data. So that'll shed some light on that. But yeah, your golf ball can make a difference big time with spin rate. So you want to have the right ball for your game. Yeah, at least 500 RPMs, I'd say, between the highest and lowest spinning balls, if not closer to 1,000 RPMs. It could be, Maybe yeah. that's a bit too much, but yeah, 500, I think, is reasonable. Change of the loft on the club, obviously, if you lower the loft, it's going to all has been equal. It will reduce the spin rate. However, there is a cost there. It will lower the launch angle, so I would say that's only really something I'd do if you already launch the ball quite high. Hitting up on it in itself doesn't reduce spin, but if you combine hitting up with lowering the loft, then you can get that lower spin loft. Spin loft is the difference between dynamic loft and angle of attack. So increasing your angle of attack, hitting more up on it, offers you the ability to lower the loft on the club without hitting it too low as a trajectory. Face to path as well. Lots of people don't think about this, but if your face is too open to the path, generally with a driver, this is going to be the biggest case. When the face is open to the path, that increases spin loft and spin. But even you know, even if it's too close to the path, this is much rare. Usually that reduces spin. But I've you know, anytime you're cutting across it anyway, you're adding some form of spin, whether it's side spin or, or whatever. So I tend to look at it if someone's fading it a lot, I would say, right, let's, if you want to reduce spin, let's move more towards a draw shape or less of a fade. Yeah, I think more curvature, especially that left to right is more spin usually, usually not a, and we're talking about wind, that's not good either. (laughs) Wind also exacerbates, spin exacerbates horizontal misses in the wind as well. And as someone who draws the ball quite a bit, I can tell you that, I've had to work tremendously hard hitting into the wind to reducing the amount of side spin on my golf ball because if it's too much, then it just makes that draw into a screaming hook. Um, So I often think of wind as like the best. Wind is like it reveals how good of a ball striker you are because it is an element of controlling spin and trajectory even more. And if you can't do those two things, particularly the spin with, with windy conditions, then your offline or shots that have too much curvature just get exacerbated 
So yeah, those are all good ways to lower spin for that question. And it's not that faders always spin the ball high. It's just that all else being equal, a fade shot tends to spin higher. But you can be a fader of the ball that spins it low. I mean, if I get a fader who has a high spin and I just reduce the loft, then they're going to lower the spin rate. I mean, Bubba Watson, I believe, spins it relatively low. I've seen shots from him where he's fading it and spinning it low because he's got such a low loft on his club and the club head set up or the center of gravity in the club head is in the right position as well. So uh, I don't want everybody to think that you can't spin it low if you're a fader. It's just you'll probably be spinning it higher than if you were a drawer of the golf ball. Yeah, just all the things that contribute to that ball flight usually lead to that. Like if I took 100 golfers who were hitting like a high fade versus 100 golfers who were hitting a more, you know, tighter draw and put them into the wind, I'd put my money on the draw pattern players for a few reasons. But again, there'd be some outliers that, you know, did not perform that the same just because the spin is usually more with the fade. Yep. Some more advanced ones here to reduce the spin. Wrist angles make a difference as well. Uh, I won't go too in-depth in this, but generally, you know, if you have more forward shaft lean impact, you're going to be reducing spin loft generally. And if you combine that with leaning or tilting back at impact, that can be a good combination for reducing spin loft. So I actually, when I'm thinking of spinning it lower, I think of being as far behind it at impact as I can with a later release. And a later release might be more lead wrist flexion as well. That's a huge one. When, when players have high spin, usually they have the matchups of a lot of lead wrist extension or cup. And then they use a lot of rotation at the bottom. Those are players who tend to have a lot of spin loft. Whereas players with less spin loft, like a Dustin Johnson, they would tend to have more bow in their wrist or flexion and use a later release with less uh, supination at the bottom. So I know that is a more complicated way, but I do go through stuff like that in my next level golf program. And as we mentioned earlier, spine tilt and ball position. When I want to hit a low spinning shot, I actually move the ball a touch back in my stance and get more behind it with my body. So I know it's a weird thing, right? I'm moving my ball back and then I'm getting more behind it. You'd think they neutralize each other. And in in a way they do, but it tends to produce lower spin loft. It neutralizes the angle of attack or it's it's kind of one for one angle of attack change, but uh, it reduces the spin loft. Whereas if I want to just launch it higher and spin it higher, I just might only move the ball position forward. So sometimes I'll do that for, for slower swing speed players. Just whack the ball farther forward in the stance. They launch it higher and spin it higher. All right, let's keep... We got some more questions here. Here's another good one. Should your driver swing have as much control as your wedge or should you be swinging to hit it as far as possible? And yeah, you know, I'll extend that to other clubs in your bag too. I don't feel like... I mean, this is just me personally. Like, I, I don't try and go on the course just, like, lashing at my driver as hard as possible. Am I maybe going at it a little bit harder than, let's say, if I was hitting a, a lob wedge 50 yards? Yes, absolutely. Or a 7-iron. But I don't feel like the rhythm and timing and tempo of my swing is all that different. I'm just naturally swinging it faster you know, because, you know, the club is different, the, the shaft is longer. So I'm not one who's trying to go out there and trying to rip it as hard as possible with the driver. I think there's players who are capable of doing that, but 
I wouldn't recommend that for most people. I mean, do you feel like you're swinging all that differently in terms of like the quote unquote control of your swing with the driver? I mean, on an effort level, on a scale of zero to 10, with a driver, I'm usually about eight to nine. I'm going at it quite aggressively. Not everything I've got, but it's, I'm not holding back much. Whereas with a wedge, say, I might be going seven or eight. So just one notch lower. But there are some reasons why maybe a shorter swing might help with the irons a little bit more because it deals with some of the physics of release. And obviously with a driver, we want to release it earlier than with a wedge, or at least to a subtle level. Let's just say there's a reason why all the top pros have a, a longer swing with a driver than with a wedge, whereas they're trying to create more forward shaft lean with a wedge. So yeah, the swing length is slightly longer. But again, most of that, to be honest, is just a bit of momentum. That club is longer and you're swinging it back and it just continues on its own regard a little bit more. It's not really a conscious effort, but it might be something to monitor in yourself. Sure. We got a couple of questions about driver length. We did an episode on that when I first was experimenting with the 47 inch driver. I've done a lot of research into this and like, you know, whether you, I I went with the 44 inch shaft, which is an inch and a half below standard. Most drivers you're buying from manufacturers are 45 and a half to 46 inches. There's no rule of thumb. I think for me going to the shorter shaft, yes, I did sacrifice some swing speed, but for a long time, it helped me get control over my strike and face presentation because the shaft was shorter. So I think it did help me for a long time. And then as I got better with those skills and I went to the longer driver shaft, I just benefited from the increase in swing speed and didn't lose really much in strike or accuracy or anything like that. So it was just the increase in distance. So I think for some players, you know, going with the shorter driver could help them with strike. But of course, you do want to work with a fitter because the weight changes. You can't just like chop down a few inches off your driver shaft and not change the weight of the head because it will, you'll lose a lot of energy transfer. You'll lose ball speed if you don't get the head uh, weight right along with the shaft. So, I think that changes the shaft stiffness as well. Yeah, it changes a lot of things. So you're going to have to add weight if you take off length of the shaft. And if you go with a longer shaft like I did, we had to remove a ton of weight to the point where like I literally took out every weight that was possible on my driver head to the point where it was even more extreme than they initially thought. Because when you go with the longer driver shaft, now the combined weight of the shaft, the shaft is longer, so there's more mass to it. And if you still have that that weight in the driver head, then you're swinging a sledgehammer. It's just too heavy. And then vice versa, if you go with the shorter shaft and you don't add weight to the head, now everything's too light and you can't transfer as much energy from your swing speed to the ball. So it can help with accuracy. There's no rule of thumb. Some players do better with longer shafts. Some players do better with shorter shafts. I think it's worth trying out. It helped me a lot but definitely work with someone who knows what they're doing to help you adjust the swing weight. That'd be my main thoughts on that. Yeah, I don't have anything on that. I haven't tried longer shafts yet. I've got one sitting in my bag though. I mean, yeah, I've I've essentially been living on opposite ends of the spectrum the last five years. I went short for a long time and now I'm liking the longer where it sounds like I'm going back to the 47 inch shaft based on that text message I got earlier. <laughs> All right, we got a question about hitting driver off the deck. Is it worth it? I don't think so, uh, no. I, <laughs> I think some people could. Like, I 
I don't think I've, I've maybe tried it once or twice on the course. It's just the, the modern driver head is so big. It's just your ground contact, low point control, like all that stuff. Like you would just have to be so skilled with it that I'm not sure it would be worth the trouble to even practice that shot enough or try it. That's my opinion. Can some golfers pull it off? I'm sure they could. Well, even if you do it effectively, I mean, what are you gaining by hitting a driver? I don't right? know. It's a longer yeah. shaft, yeah. so there's more speed. You might get a little bit more ball speed out of it. However, you're hitting on a part of the face that is lower, so it's going to launch lower with higher spin. So you'd be better off with the three wood because that three wood, at least the center of gravity of that is lower, is closer to the ground because it's designed exactly. for that specific yeah. purpose. And so you're probably going to get a higher launch and lower spin out of the three wood. Okay, you might have a drop in ball speed, perhaps. Although, I mean, there's an argument could be that you get an increase in ball speed because you're actually hitting closer to the center of mass of the club with a three wood because the three wood is, the center of mass is lowered down you'll be missing the sweet spot with the driver always because you're going to be hitting low on the face. So I can't really see much of a scenario where driver off the deck would even go longer unless perhaps that lower launch is running out. Say, for example, on a Lynx course, you might get more rollout from that. Other than that, I can't see the value in it really. It would be my reverse argument for not hitting your three-wood off the tee as much because a three wood is designed, you know, manufacturers make those clubs to be hit off the fairway. The size of the face, the center of gravity, that is optimized to be hit off the ground, not the tee. And vice versa for the driver. That club is not designed to be hit off the ground. So that's one of the reasons why, like, I've led this charge for people to stop hitting fairway woods off the tee as much because, you know, the driver has more forgiveness, has more MOI, two to three times the amount of MOI as a three wood, has a larger face. So you can, you can miss hit it more. So yeah, for that opposite reason, I'd say it's not a great idea to hit driver off the deck, but again, I'm going to test it. I'm going to test it today. I got my quad. Yeah, go I'm for just it. See what happens. A note. I'm going to hit driver off the deck and see what happens. I, maybe with the older clubs, you could potentially see it because I think Let, the modern you know three woods are so no, low spinning. That, <laughs> no, no one's even going to do this. Let, we got better questions yeah, to go to. Let's yeah, just say a note a of that one. Try later. Someone asked like what a typical practice session routine is. Like, I hope this could be a whole other episode. My general rule of thumb, or at least for my practice with driver, is that I'm doing more quote unquote repetitive blocked practice than I would than let's say with a distance control club like a wedge. So I'm focused more on the again ball position, T height, making sure that's consistent. And I'm looking at all the things we've talked about in this series, you know. How's my strike? How's the curvature of the ball? How's the start direction? Which is quite similar to other clubs as well. But I'm not, I'm more repetitive with the driver because it is a more repetitive situation. Whereas, you know, a wedge, I'm going to hit some 80 yarders. I'm going to hit some 40 yarders, 60 yarders. I'm going to be more, you know, challenge myself randomly. But then, of course, there's the other element of driver practice where you could try and strike it around the face and, you know, doing that more. I always say it's experimental. I know, Adam, you have 20 more appropriate words from motor research with differential practice and all that stuff is that I will experiment with the opposite of my faults. If I'm healing it too much, maybe I'm going to try and strike it from the toe. If I'm hooking it too much, maybe I'm going to try and slice swing. So 
I'm hitting the same shot over and over again because it is a driver, but I'm also paying attention to all the impact conditions, which is obviously the recurring theme of this show. So that's how I view my typical driver session is that, yeah, it might be more repetitive, but I'm also playing around with all those variables. Yeah, with driver, I do less generalized experimental work. So, you know, the toe, heel, the left, right, things like that. I do less of that with the driver, less generalized work. I stick more with irons with that. But like you said, if there is a specific issue that I'm having, I will do more specific differential work. So if everything is toe, 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 I will spend, you know, 10 minutes trying to hit more of the heel side of the club. If everything's left, 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 I'll spend a few minutes trying to hit it some degree to the right. So yeah, less generalized and more specific differential practice there. Most of it is calibration work, you know, just trying to find your ideal shot with that. And it's just the stuff that we talked about earlier, just looking at face strike and face direction is the main thing, making subtle changes to it. What I will say is I like to get the club out of my hands and put it back in again. So rather than just holding it in the hands and hitting ball after ball after ball, pure block practice, I like to at least step out of the bay, hit a wedge in between these shots, something like that. Something to get the driver out of my hands because you get into a groove. Literally, that spine in the grip gets into a groove in my hands and it's fine, but you're not really learning anything there. So getting it out of the hands and then having to go through that process of resetting the grip in your hands You'll make more mistakes with the outcome, but you will learn quicker the differences in the fields. And so that's really important. That's one of the reasons like in the whole blocked versus random debate is that I've grown to hate the word blocked. Because, you know, I might say like, yeah, I'm doing repetitive practice with the driver, but at the same time, like I'm taking time to like step back and think about these things. And like you said, regrip the club. So it's like, Technically, I'm hitting the same shot over and over again, but my engagement and, you know, how I'm approaching it and paying attention to the feedback I'm seeing with impact and ball flight, that is what has made the practice more valuable for me versus, yeah, if I was at the range just hammering driver after driver after driver. That is block practice too, I guess, technically, but it's not engaged block practice. So sometimes I get like, yeah, words in golf get, gets so complicated to me that's a side thought yeah the drive is very sensitive as well so that's why i don't like doing as much experimental work with the driver because it can get a little frustrating you know if you're if you're trying to hit it more right more left with an iron it's easier to control the amount yeah so you can (laughs) you can build feel quite well with that and those skills will transfer to the driver as well eventually. Absolutely. But if you're trying to tweak the club face with a driver, you're going to see quite extreme outcome differences just because of the fact that if your face is two degrees open with a driver, it's going 26 yards right. If it's two degrees open with a wedge, it's going two yards right. So it's just more sensitive. The same error will be magnified 10, 12 times with a driver. Yeah, it can probably get frustrating if you're not very attuned to subtle differences. You might be able to get there in the future, but stick with differential practice. Do that with more irons, less with driver, I would say. Okay, let's see if we can rapid fire through these last few. There's a question we might have addressed in other episodes. Do you train swing speed before strike consistency or vice versa? This is an interesting one. Again, it's golf, so there's no right answer. I think the things that 
you can do to increase swing speed. And you can go to our episode with Mike Carroll on that in terms of like getting stronger, more mobile, more explosive through workouts. Or if you're going to do the, you know, the swing speed systems like super speed golf or the stack, those train you to move faster. It's like moving the regulator from a golf cart. I have not seen any adverse effects on my swing while doing that type of work. Now, that's not to say that couldn't happen for a different golfer, maybe a more beginner intermediate. So I'm not sure. I mean, I think the logical answer would be like, oh, work on strike consistency verse and then work on your swing speed. But I don't know if that's right for everyone. So I would say like, yes, you could potentially do both at the same time. But if you're starting to notice like ill effects in your golf swing, then I would say then maybe like dial back the swing speed stuff. But I'm just not convinced that getting stronger or more mobile would adversely affect your golf swing. If anything, I think it would make it better. So that's kind of some of my thoughts on that. Just general rules of thumb, but you know, everyone's different. Yeah, it just depends on what's the limiting factor for you, right? For limiting factor for me is not strike, it's speed. I don't swing it very fast. I, I've never really done speed training. I need to do that. Whereas if you've got, I know people with 110 plus mile an hour. I know people with 130 mile an hour swing speeds who can't find the center of the face yeah, at all. Yeah, you know, exactly. They've played lots of other sports. They're good at baseball. They've transferred to golf. They got this huge swing speed, but they're just striking all over the face. All right, for that person, yeah, you could improve their swing speed further, but really right now they, they need to find that center of the face. So I would say just separate them out. At least you do three types of training, right? You do some which is pure speed training where you're not worried about striking anything. So you're taking the mental limiter off. Or you're allowing your body to swing as fast as possible. At worst, swing and hit a balloon or something so you're not worried about missing it. Then you do some strike-specific stuff. And then you might do a combination of both. So three different types of practice. So you could use a speed, something like the stack system, and place a T in the ground. So place a really big T and angle it. Angle it at the angle of the shaft. And try and swing as fast as you can while hitting that T. So that is challenging both things to the extreme then, because that actually, to hit that T is more precise than hitting a golf ball. You're very often going to miss that. But if you can swing as fast as possible and hit that tee, you're getting the best of both worlds. Yeah, I think my point on the swing speed systems is that, first of all, I would also make sure like you're physically capable of doing it. I don't want anyone to injure themselves and certainly warm up. I've, I've hurt myself before if I didn't warm up properly. But you're not hitting a golf ball, so the context is there. A lot of people get scared of those things. It's just like, oh, it's going to ruin my swing. I don't think doing explosive speed work for two to three sessions a week for 15 minutes is going to change your motor patterns in your golf swing. It's just not enough time to introduce a new pattern. At least that's what I've seen. And you're not hitting a golf ball. So the context is completely different. Again, everyone has to make their own decisions, but I don't see it as this like huge risk to your golf game. I think if, you know, you can add some speed, it just, again, it introduces potential for distance and scoring. But again, if your strike is all over the place, like Adam said, if you're that golfer who's got a ton of speed and you can't strike it well, well, then you know where you need to focus your time. So again, it's always with golf is how much time do you have? What's the biggest problem? And maybe address that first. And then if you gain proficiency there, then you can layer on something else. So it's a different answer for everyone. Exactly. So another question, someone said, how important is shoulder plane? And, you know, arm depth and things like that. This goes into matchups. So, I mean, there is no ideal 
shoulder plane. I would want it within certain boundaries, certainly. I couldn't give you the specific angles of that, but I, when I see it, I know. But you have different matchups. I mean, you have guys like, a, say, a David Toms, who is more of a, he stands a little bit more upright. He's got a flatter shoulder turn and then much more arm lift. And then you've got a Matt Kucho who bends over a little bit more. He's got a steeper shoulder turn, shoulder plane, and a more a flatter arm plane relative to that shoulder plane. So it's really matchups. Generally, if you've got a flat shoulder plane, you'll want a steep arm plane. And if you've got a steep shoulder plane, you'll want a flatter arm plane relative to it. Those are the types of matchups you tend to see. I'm sure there's some outliers to that, but that's generally what I see. But I don't really think too much about shoulder plane. That is determined more by posture. So whether you are more upright at setup and then what your body and your head is doing throughout the swing. So if you are raising up in the backswing, that's probably going to flatten your shoulder plane. Whereas if you're dropping down and squatting like a Tiger Woods, that's going to steepen the shoulder plane. So I'd look at setup and body motion really with that. I wouldn't try and manipulate or contort your shoulders into uh, specific positions. I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> not something, <laughs> yeah, not something I've ever thought about question. or, you know, and I don't have knowledge about it. So I'm just going to zip my mouth shut there. I think we've got, I mean, I've gone through our list. Well, what I will say with that one is if the matchups are not good, say, for example, you had a flat shoulder plane and a flat arm swing, you're probably going to hit a lot of top shots or, you know, low and on the heel and vice versa. If you've got a steep shoulder plane and a steep arm swing, you're going to hit a lot of toe and fat shots. It's uh, They're not good matchups there. Yeah, we had another question about how an upward angle of attack shifts your path to the left and how to counter that and set up. Too many people slice because of path. I think we did address that in episode one where the answer to that one was you got to figure out a way to swing right. <laughs> or what does Hogan do? Have you ever seen the, the visual of Hogan's, Ben Hogan's setup? What he does with different clubs, you know, as a visual yeah, of like his foot position, the, the ball, ball position. Posi- yeah, yeah, the ball positions change. Yeah, yeah, but also his right foot drags back with the driver. So with a wedge, it's more his, closed. It basically keeps his left foot in the same place, changes his ball position, and then with his wedges, the right foot is more forwards, or is it basically his stance is more open. And uh, with the driver, he drags his right foot back a little bit, so he basically closes off his body angle. So he intuitively figured out D-plane. I'm sure he couldn't describe it in the geometry that we use today. He wasn't thinking like that. But through beating millions and millions of golf balls, he figured out how to manipulate the D-plane. And his answer was with the driver, just aim his body more right. And I would say that is a, a good thing to do. Probably the easiest thing to do is to aim your shoulders more to the right. So close off your upper body a little bit and then just drag the right foot back a touch. That can help you swing more to the right without having to think anything overly complicated. Yeah, which reminds me that I would love to do an episode on like alignment and setup. I think that uh, yeah, we would could. be a great topic. But yeah, I think that takes care of that question. We did have a question. Uh, can you provide some commentary recommendations for seniors and those of us dealing with chronic back issues? I don't feel comfortable talking about that. I am not a physical therapist. I do not have any expertise on that. Maybe we could get Mike Carroll to come back on and talk about that. But yeah, of course, with anything with the driver in general, if anything we've suggested in these two episodes is causing you pain or injury, like stop. <laughs> I've had to do this sometimes myself. I've I've strained my neck and some other things in my body 
from time to time and I've just had to kind of throttle it back and try and, you know, not necessarily rest the area, but, you know, not going at it so hard with the driver, focusing more on like walking on those days until the injury loosens up. But yeah, I wish I had better information there. I'm just not qualified to talk about that. Yeah, well, me neither. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, the obvious thing would be don't do anything like spine tilt. If you've got bad back issues, don't do anything spine tilt wise to certainly not to any extreme. But you, the things that you can do is keep the swing basically the same, but put a tiny bit more weight on the back foot, put the ball a bit more forwards. And generally for a senior with a bad back, they're not going to be swinging 120 mile an hour. They're probably going to have a much lower swing speed. And so you almost can't launch it high enough. And you, you almost need more spin in most cases. And so having a higher lofty club, placing the ball forward in the stance, all those things just to get that ball up in the air will get you more distance. Definitely. So I told you when we first started recording that we would probably end up at dinner time for the Sherman household. And here we are. <laughs> You're over it, aren't you? It's I'm just, waiting. Yeah, well, dinner, no, dinner no, cold. Yeah, no, dogs I, eating it. I, I think I'm okay. We don't have a dog, so I don't have to worry about that. Yeah, I think I'm just looking. I think we got to all the questions. We, I'm we, tapped out. Yeah, we had a I'm ton. Of, like, out, thanks yeah. everyone for the. We got a million questions on Twitter. I think we got to most of them, if not all of them. Adam and I are spent, so we're gonna wrap it up there. And hopefully, we gave you some ideas on how to improve your driver performance. I mean, originally you said you wanted to talk about driver practice, and I said that's gonna be like a twenty, thirty minute session. But when you meant you actually want to talk about driver technique and some of the other things. I'm like, okay, well, yeah, that's, we got yeah, that's, content for that's four why hours we, That's why, like, <laughs> I always, you know, golf and words and stuff. Like, I guess when I said practice, like, when I practice, like, I'm, you know, taking all of these variables into account, you know, so. You just wanted a driver-specific podcast. Yeah, that's what, that's I think, I think the people can't get enough of the driver. But we got to give, yeah, we've done wedge episodes. We got to get, you know, I don't think I have much putting expertise. We, we got to get more of a, maybe a putting guru on the show to give people some. Well, we've there. done a putting episode. We um, did. But yeah, I, I, think I think we were more We can get a putting guru. Yeah, yeah, I think maybe we can dive a little bit deeper into putting and maybe we can line someone up there. I got a good buddy, Preston. He's a very good putting coach. Yeah, let's he's, go. He's Preston. probably more technical on the more technical side, so he'll definitely have other things to offer, but he also understands the intuitive stuff as well. Let's get Preston on then. All right, so we're going to wrap it up there. Thanks for everyone's questions or feedback as always. Adam, where can they find you? AdamYoungGolf.com. Everything we've talked about is in Next Level Golf. All the stuff that you couldn't visualize is in there in clear visual format. And John, where can people find you? You can find me at practical-golf.com if you're interested in some of the launch monitors to get feedback. I do have deals on those. Super Speed Golf, one of the overspeed training systems to help you with your swing speed. We've got that as well. Thanks again for everyone's support and we will see you next time with a new episode.